Hey everybody, this is our second installment of What Curtis Read This Week for Black History Month. Uh, you may know that we have moved out of Black History Month, but we kind of feel like that's okay and it's not that big of a deal if we learn about Black History after Black History Month as well as inside of it. So we're going to continue this as we continue uh, reading the book together. If you listen to the first episode of this little mini installment of podcasts, then you know that we are going through the book African American Religious History. It's edited by a man named Milton Cernet. Last time I went through the first section of the book, which looked at the pre-Civil War era in the South. This time I wanted to share a couple of interesting and or important things from the second section of the book, which deals with that same time period just in the North. Now, obviously the main difference here is slavery being practiced in the South and not in the North. But one of the interesting things I noticed in reading the selections of primary source documents from the North this week was how similar the dynamics were for black Christians in the North as they were in the South. Specifically, the degree to which white American Christians wanted to control what and how and when black Christians worshipped. Many of the selections in this part of the book included at least aspects of how separate black denominations came into being. Even today, two of the main denominations of the black church are the African Methodist Episcopal Church, or AME, churches, and the African Methodist Episcopal Zion, or AME Zion, churches, both of which formed out of the Methodist denomination in the North during this time period, pre-Civil War. And then similarly, there were black Baptist associations that formed in the North in that same time period. So the roots of the historically black denominations go back to this pre-Civil War, early 19th century in the North, uh, specifically in the cities in the North. And it's no accident that the Methodist and Baptist churches are where the black church first took root, at least in their own separate denominations, as opposed to the Episcopalian or Presbyterian churches. One of the selections I read was written by Richard Allen, one of the main leaders of the formation of the separate AME church, which was the first black denomination to form. It was in 1816 in Philadelphia that it formed. And he put it like this. I was confident there was no religious sect or denomination that would suit the capacity of the colored people as well as the Methodist for the plain and simple gospel suits best for any people for the unlearned can understand and the learned are sure to understand. He goes on to say, for all the other denominations preached so high flown that we were not able to comprehend their doctrine. Episcopalian and Presbyterian denominations were largely geared towards the educated at the time, the respectable folks, while Methodism and Baptist churches had their roots in the more regular folks, you could say. They preached a gospel people could actually understand. It's a good reminder that the way we talk, what our liturgical practices are, they communicate something about who is welcome, who this church is for. We would do well to keep that in mind today, I think, as well. I have been in churches who have the stated goal of being diverse, but whose stories are about white upper-middle-class lifestyles, whose music is intentionally white middle-aged dad rock, whose pastors dress like they just got home from the office, whether that's at the insurance company or at the cool tech startup. That church isn't for everyone, and the people who are on the outside know it, always have. Getting back to our book, the roots of black denominations began to sprout in the northern cities, like I said, pre-Civil War. I grew up aware of black denominations, and I think my knee-jerk, ill-informed reaction was, why? Why do they feel the need to be separate? Why can't they be a part of our churches? As if the problem was on their side of the aisle. And, well, the answer, at least in large part, is found in the racism of the white church in the north in the early 19th century. 
Richard, Richard Allen, who I mentioned just a minute ago, goes on later to describe how representatives of the Methodist denomination pressured their church to sign over their property and control of the church that they had built to the denomination, and that if they didn't, they couldn't be Methodist. When the black congregation balked at that, the representatives seemed to relent, but then drew up articles of incorporation for the black church that signed the property over to the denomination anyway, confident that the black congregation would be too ignorant of the details to know the difference. They didn't discover that they had been deceived for 10 years. Several of the selections in this, uh, this section of the book include stories of the white denominations and powers trying to keep control of the black churches and the black church leaders. It was simultaneously disturbing because of the echoes and similar themes in the South at the time under slavery, and it was kind of disturbing to read because of the echoes of the very same dynamics today. One piece was by a man named Jeremiah Asher, who founded and pastored a black Baptist church in Hartford, Connecticut, and then pastored in Philadelphia after that. The reason he and others split from the white Baptist church in Hartford to form their own Baptist church, they were tired of having to sit in the Negro pew, as it was called which was, in Asher's telling, usually two, one in each extreme corner of the gallery. The rest of the seats in the house were much the same as those found in chapels in England. These, however, were about six feet square, with the sides so high it was almost impossible to see the minister or the rest of the congregation. Later in the piece, in describing the formation of the new church, he writes, If men will disenfranchise me and separate me from the rest of my father's children, they will do so at their own expense, not mine. I cannot prevent it, but I will not help them do it. And then finally, a piece that comes from Peter Williams, who was the rector of a black Episcopalian church in New York City in the 1830s. Williams was also appointed to the board of an abolitionist group, the Anti-Slavery Society, at its founding in 1833. This displeased the presiding bishop of the Episcopalian church, a Bishop Onderdonk, which is an appropriate name, Bishop Onderdonk. Well, he was just concerned that maybe Williams was rocking the boat a little too much, creating division. And aren't we as Christians supposed to be about unity and peace? The letter that Onderdonk wrote could have been written today. It's the same reasoning that you have seen all through the history of America and the American church, that we should just wait for justice. We shouldn't force things too much and rock the boat. That wouldn't be Christ-like. Listen to this that Onderdonk writes. Let me advise you, writing to Williams, to resign at once your connection in every department with the Anti-Slavery Society and to make public your resignation. I cannot now give you all my reasons. Let me see you as soon as you can. I can better say than write all I think. <laughs> I bet. My advice, therefore, is to give up at once. Let it be seen that on whichever side right may be, St. Philip's Church will be found on the Christian side of meekness and order and self-sacrifice to the common good and the peace of the community. You will be no losers by it, for the God of peace will also be to you the God of all consolation, your affectionate brother in Christ, Benjamin T. Onderdonk. Ugh. Williams then writes a public letter to the citizens of New York, where he, he lays out his reasons for having been a part of the Anti-Slavery Society, and then does what he had vowed to do, and obeys his bishop by publicly resigning. Why are there black denominations? Because racist white people made it impossible for black people to follow Jesus in the existing churches all the way back before the civil war and have been continuing to do that work ever since. And in the process to borrow the words of Jeremiah Asher, we have done so at our own expense, not theirs. 
So that's what I found interesting from this section of this book um, for this week. Um, We'll be back later on this week with another um, episode of this little mini-series looking at the churches in the post-Civil War era. So I hope you found that interesting as well, and I hope you learned a little something, and I'll see you next time. Okay, bye.